Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. This is part three of the four-part series from Dr. Sparks and Dr. Sinclair on acute kidney injury. This one will focus on causes and management. All right. So now we know of a number of things that can cause AKI. Um, right. We, we, we're going to go through a couple of them. Let's go over some of the potential causes of AIN. Okay. Any common things that we should be on the lookout for, Matt? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think probably the, the most common thing, and, and we see it all the time in the hospital um, when we're considering AIN, um, are medications. Um, so us basically giving it to our patients. Um, and it's important to know that there's a lot of really common medications that, that do this, medications that we use every day in the hospital and at home. And these can include uh, penicillins, cephalosporins, sulfonamides, NSAIDs, nephrologist worst enemy, uh, PPIs, um, rifampin, Lasix, um, and then ATN um, can also be caused by medications, but some different ones. And these well, would hold in- on a second. Sure. You just named every medication there is. <laughs> so that's one thing I always want to mention. Almost every medication has been implicated in acute interstitial nephritis. Yep. The problem is, is we have zero way to actually know which one of the medications it is. However, there are a few that are well-known or common offenders, and antibiotics is a, a commonly in that bucket. PPIs is one that we always look at. I will say in that list, though, Lasix is not that common. Uh, however, it's probably been in the literature before, but mm-hmm. uh, so definitely you look at all the medications and sort of try to stop newer ones that were just started. That's one, one caveat is like, typically it's not something they've been on for five years. It's something they've been on for just a few, few months or a few weeks. Right. Yeah. And, and, and just speaking of Lasix, you know, I, I have seen, uh, probably one or two patients in the hospital where, where, where Lasix was considered as a possible cause of it. Um, but these patients needed a loop diuretic. So like, what, what would you give if your patient needs a loop diuretic, but you, you can't give Lasix? It's a good question. There are other diuretics that you can use depending on how much um, you're in output that, or you know what sort of state they're in. If, you, if they're in heart failure versus uh, they're on a diuretic for blood pressure control, for instance. Uh, what do you think? Um, so, uh, so f- the first thing we, we thought about was what about Bumex and Torsamide? But these are both both sulfa medications as well, so they kind of have the same uh, structure or similar structure as Lasix. So we we couldn't use either of those, um, and those are the three big loops directs that we always use. So uh, the one acid. Oh uh, man, you, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, so that that's <laughs> what we did, um, and that's a medication again that I you know you probably probably hadn't heard since med school, um, but it does exist still. So uh, you know if, if you really have ruled out every other medication, which is hard to do, they still uh, have the. Dosing recommendations on a stone tablet. <laughs> we talked about acute glomerular nephritis. This is um, kind of a, a kidney emergency. This is when we've got to snap into action and potentially uh, give strong immunosuppressants. Let's shift gears to ATN. 
What's going on there? So, what, what what can cause that? So again, medications, um, some different ones, but also antibiotics play a huge role. So vancomycin um, and aminoglycosides, we see these all the time in the hospital. Probably more so vancomycin than aminoglycosides these days, just because of all the other side effects that those cause. Um, but it's definitely important to keep in mind and, um, and make sure you're getting you know bank levels on your on your patients, especially your patients with with uh, um, AKI or chronic kidney disease, because these levels could go up pretty quickly. Uh, amphotericin B uh, can also do it, and this is obviously a, you know, a big gun that we would only use in pretty severe fungal infections. Uh, cisplatinum can do it. Um, acetaminophen could actually do it, believe it or not, uh, which is kind of disheartening since uh, you know, that's, we tell pretty much all our patients that's all they could take for pain uh, if we want to avoid opioids and NSAIDs. And then radio contrast uh, agents can do it um, and sometimes cause uh, what's called a contrast-induced nephropathy, which we won't uh, talk about today because that's uh, another talk. Um, it's also important to be aware that ATN can actually be caused by prolonged pre-renal azotemia. Um, so you could start out as having a pre-renal azotemia, but poor perfusion over a long period of time can ultimately injure the tubules. Um, and furthermore, profound hypotension can do it, which is why we could even see in a patient who has a drop in their systolic blood pressure to the 80s or 70s, even if it's transient, they, they'll develop a rapid rise in creatinine, sometimes over, over hours to, to days um, and even develop oliguria or aneuria, which is, again, consistent with, with an ATN, um, kind of see this exponential-type rise. Um, and we see this a lot in, in patients who have come out of a recent surgery um, and potentially had a drop in pressure during the surgery. Uh, we must also not forget that hemoglobin and myoglobin can also cause direct tubular injury, and therefore ATN should always be considered a likely etiology in patients who have hemolysis or rhabdomyolysis. Okay, so now we performed our urine microscopy. We don't see any muddy brown cast. We see some hyaline casts. Our phena is calculated and happens to be on the low side, less than 1%. Our history is consistent, and so we suspected prerenal azotemia, and they're volume depleted. And this is also, just to be clear, that these definitions and how you diagnose someone with prerenal azotemia also how they respond to your initial therapy is an important consideration. So we have to make a decision on what fluid to give this individual. And so that's where we lead to next. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a, this is a topic that's notoriously, um, uh, I think, sometimes difficult for med students to, to understand until they're actually doing it every day on the floor. And, and as a medicine resident, you get a lot better at doing this because you kind of uh, get into the groove of, of, of doing similar management. Um, uh, and basically, uh, like you mentioned, what type of fluid is really important. So we all know there's, there's hypotonic, isotonic, and hypertonic fluids. Um, and it's really important to always start with an isotonic fluid um, for, for the most part for these patients. And these would include fluids such as uh, normal saline or lactated ringer solution, um, amongst others. But um, these fluids will provide volume first, intravascular volume to the patient. And that's important because in a patient who you're suspecting hypovolemia, the patient really needs to be given one to two liters of an isotonic fluid immediately. Um, and if they're unable to take PO, they should be, they should be then maintained on a maintenance fluid. Um, and there's actually a, a quick formula that I, that I used in residency that was pretty helpful to calculate how much maintenance fluid someone should be uh, on. And you basically, uh, the, the shorthand for this is you just take their weight in kilos, and then you add 40 to that, and that should be their hour, hourly rate. Um, 
So therefore, in a 75-kilogram guy who uh, needs maintenance fluids running, he should be on an isotonic, uh, either uh, isotonic saline or an LR at 115 mLs per hour. So you just take 40 and you add that to his weight. Uh, so that's, a, again, 115 per hour, which, uh, you know, and often in, in, in residency and even fellowship, you, you see sometimes people are, are nervous to give fluids at, uh, at rates, you know, uh, approaching 100 or over 100, but in these patients who are not taking anything in, uh, otherwise, uh, you really got to be aware that they're gonna they're 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 very apt to 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 have insensible losses and to and to drop their pressures. So and, you know, and this is this changes sometimes in patients who have other things going on, like severe heart failure or who may not make any urine at all. But in a, in a patient who had a baseline normal renal function and and, and a normal heart, um, this formula should be kept in mind. All right. Um... I'd like to talk a little bit about the differences in saline versus lactated ringers. This is an important topic. Balance basically means that the fluid um, has an isotonic, not only sodium concentration, but also has a normal chloride concentration and a pH that's more in, in line with the pH of the uh, of, of plasma. So. Uh, lactate ringers is uh, an example of that. So two studies I wanted to mention, one called SALTID and one called SMART. These were both published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018, and they were what's called pragmatic clinical trials. Pragmatic clinical trials are a new emerging way to do research that leverages real-world practices and are done on a scale that is much larger than what we typically think of. So in these scenarios, an entire emergency room or an entire ICU would be randomized to a group. Participants oftentimes don't even sign consents. And in these studies, for instance, the SALTED study included 13,000 patients. And the SMART study included almost 16,000 patients, both performed at Vanderbilt. The SALTED was in the ED, so SALT-ED and the SMART was performed in the ICU. They randomized patients to receive balanced solution, either lactated ringers or plasmolite, or to saline, and they would cross this over, and it was a 16-month duration. So one month, the whole ICU ER would get one fluid, then the next month they'd shift to the other, vice versa. The primary outcome on the SALTED trial was Looking at hospital-free days, there was no significant difference. The secondary outcome was major adverse kidney events, which was a composite of death, need for renal replacement therapy, and increase or persistent increase in creatinine elevation. There was statistically significant um, decrease in major adverse kidney effects in the group that re- received um, balanced solutions. However, this was a secondary outcome. In the SMART study, you had make or major adverse kidney events as a primary outcome. Remember, this was 16,000 patients, and this was significantly lower by just a margin, just a small fraction, so about 15.4% in the saline group versus 14.3% in the LR group. And then there were some differences also seen in the secondary outcomes, but they weren't as big. The bottom line is there is, seems to be some uh, emerging literature suggesting that the use of balanced solution has some positive effects. And if you multiply this over how much saline is used versus LR, this could 
actually have some positive impact. So for my practice, I have really been shifting to promoting the use of lactated ringers as a resuscitation fluid for patients that are volume deplete. Wow. That's great to know. Yeah, and I know for a long time, you know, medicine doctors have been pretty uh, um, uh, set on their ways <laughs> of using uh, using NS, but uh, it's nice to see that there's been some uh, real uh, good studies done recently um, that have kind of shifted the way the way that we think. So, and I think this is an important point for people to to carry going forward. I know uh, the concern uh, that I'd always heard uh, for using LR was that. Um, in patients who have a lactic acidosis, uh, you, you, you could be worried about potentially increasing their lactate more. Um, but I think the other issue is these patients are already acidotic. If you're giving them NS, you know, you still could be worsening a hyperchloremic acidosis. So, sure. so it's not a good argument to, to say. Um, that, and, and one yeah. other issue is people brought up is that the number, the amount, the amount of potassium is uh, is high in lactate ringers. Well, actually, it's not very high. It's four milliequivalents per liter. So right. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a very low amount of potassium. But mm-hmm. these are also things to take into consideration. And when you get, make an, an individualistic uh, treatment plan for your patient, um, if they meet criteria to give LR, I would uh, consider that. Okay, great. Can you tell me what the mechanism is for how the lactate ringers is actually better than normal saline? That's a good question. Now, first caveat to this, this is all theoretical. And, but is backed on some science. So one of the mechanisms that protects the organism from uh, losing all of the, the solutes and electrolytes during AKI, because you think about it, during an acute kidney injury, you have damage to the tubules. The main job of the tubules is to reclaim those solutes and those um, electrolytes that are uh, filtered through the glomerulus and to the filtrate back into the body. And so when the tubules are damaged, you'll lose all that into your urine. So one of the mechanisms by which the kidney senses this is through a mechanism called tubuloglomerular feedback, where the macula densa, this specialized part of the kidney, senses an increase in chloride content. And that is a signal to say, hey, we're losing a lot of stuff here that we shouldn't be. And then that sends a signal to the afferent and efferent arterial to clamp down and basically stop making filtrate, stop making urine. And this protects the entire organism from uh, a state where they would basically just continue to lose um, uh, these very important um, anions and uh, you know, these important solutes. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you think about it, one of the differences that I mentioned earlier was about the chloride content of solutions where normal saline has a chloride content that's much higher than what your body typically has, whereas lactated ringers does not. So the thought is that if you flood the body with a bunch of normal saline, then the chloride content in the filtrate would increase earlier than what it should have been, signaling the macula densa to turn on its apparatus to stop the um, production of urine. Mm -hmm. And so that's the theoretical benefit of why LR is better than normal saline in situations of mild um, acute kidney injury. However, um, it's, as I mentioned, unclear whether or not this theoretical mechanism uh, truly is, uh, is happening. But it, it, if you look back at the, those two trials I mentioned, the kidney outcomes were better in the lactate ringers. There's other studies also, but I also admit that we 
discuss some of the positive trials, there's equal equal number of trials that uh, were awash or didn't show a big difference. I also just want to touch briefly on, on, on bicarbonate um, and a- adding that to IV fluids. This is a pretty complicated topic, um, and we don't have time to go into too much detail. Um, but if there's ever a consideration that your patient may need bicarbonate, and some things that may tip you off to that is if they're, they have a persistent serum bicarbonate that's less than 20 or if their pH is less than 7.1 uh, or even uh, recent studies showing 7.2 potentially. But if, you, if you're thinking they may need it, um, it's always a good idea to speak to the nephrologist who's around, um, even if you feel pretty comfortable about it because uh, it could actually be dangerous if, if given improperly. Um, so we'll leave it at that. But anytime you're going to consider starting someone, especially on a maintenance bicarbonate drip, uh, it's always a good idea to touch base. With, with a nephrologist. Totally agree. Call your friendly nephrologist anytime. <laughs> always there. <laughs> always there. That concludes part three from Dr. Sparks and Dr. Sinclair about causes and management of AKI in the hospital. To hear how this case turns out, listen to part four. The views and opinions stated during this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the Durham VA Hospital.